0: This is a Humble Man Recording.
1: Scano, Sego, Ani, you're listening to the Red Road Podcast with Courtney Skye and Hayden King.
0: Good afternoon, Courtney. Good afternoon, Hayden. How is it today?
1: Good, good, good.
0: Back on the road.
1: Mm-hmm. Red Road.
0: Back on the Red Road. So we have been back to recording our podcast. We had a little bit of a break and started to record a few more episodes. I think this mm-hmm. must be episode. I'm not sure which episode. We're we're eleven? above ten, no, though. This is episode that's eleven. Impressive. I'm very impressed.
1: I'm very proud of us. Um, yeah,
0: keeping it going. I
1: didn't think we would make it this far.
0: Yeah, I mean, maybe we should tone it down on the how surprised we are that people <laughs> actually listen to our podcast. Mm-hmm. It's clear that this is a thing, and we're doing mm-hmm. it, and people yeah. are actually listening. To yeah. us. So, thank you for keeping us going.
1: Thank you for following us on Twitter. Thank you for. Um, we are also on Instagram. We have far fewer Instagram followers.
0: Yeah, it's uh, okay. than we do.
1: But we actually do like different content too for our Instagram. So, if you're an Instagrammer, please feel free to follow us on Instagram because we do stories and uh, funny jokes and all that kind of stuff on Instagram that does not make it to Twitter. So, there you go.
0: <laughs> so, yes, <laughs> very. Uh, <laughs> Very fulsome endorsement <laughs> and self-promotion there. Mm-hmm. Um, so this podcast, we sort of alternate between you know serious and dense policy issues and uh, silly <laughs> stories or light-hearted. bites. Um, lighthearted. Lighthearted. It's always lighthearted. Mohawks mm-hmm. well, um, are fun people. Yeah, if you say so. And uh, today we're going to come back around to talking about... uh, I mean, I guess one of the last episodes we talked about was uh, Unistat and and the rule of law and the crown and all that sort Mm -hmm. of stuff. And I think that was an important discussion to have. And I would actually be happy to continue that discussion Mm -hmm. about, you know, where the crown gets authority to govern. And so much of that underwrites every other conversation that we have, especially when it comes to policy. You know, when we talk about any other area, that's sort of the elephant Mm -hmm. in the room, like... Uh, wow, this is a fantastic policy, but, hey, the Crown has still imposed its sovereignty on us and is unilaterally developing policy and legislation. So it's almost like anything that the government produces, we always have to keep that in mind. And, I don't know, it sort of stymies any conversation about discrete policies. But that's what we're going to do today, right? Yeah. So today, the federal government... Uh, it's brand new Minister of Indigenous Services Canada Seamus O'Regan O'Regan Seamus? Reagan?
1: Uh, Seamus O'Regan Is
0: it same- Seamus? Or? Seamus I think uh, Okay it's okay we'll just, mm-hmm. we'll re- He's
1: not going to be in the position for very long No no no
0: we're, we're, it's okay to re- mispronounce his name mm-hmm.
1: uh,
0: So O'Regan announced that there is a new there's an agreement struck between the assembly of first nations and the federal government to uh, overhaul how primary education is funded and delivered on reserve for k-12 students so that was a big announcement today
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, big announcement and uh, we haven't really talked about education so we thought maybe it would be a uh, a segue into a broader conversation around education of course I'm an educator is that what you do? Uh, yes, yes. That's when I'm not podcasting. Mm-hmm. Courtney is a student. Yeah. Little, little known fact.
1: Little known fact. I am a uh, participating in the colonial education system. I'm taking some online courses because I need to do academic upgrading. <laughs> so I'm doing, because I was on academic probation and I need to go back to school and I'm uh, doing that process.
0: Online courses is like the neo-colonial.
1: Yeah. education mm-hmm.
0: but we do have a dispute about uh, the utility of education and uh, a post-secondary education but maybe uh, before we get to that we we'll, we'll talk a little bit about this this announcement and uh, funding First Nation schools on reserve which mm-hmm. has historically as all of our listeners I'm sure know mm-hmm. uh, been neglected mm-hmm and of course before neglect the education system was the vehicle through which Canada undertook its attempted genocide of indigenous people mm-hmm. so it's, I don't know it's, 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 it, when the government comes out and says we got all these billions of new dollars for education and we've got $1,500 per student for language and culture and, and uh, we're going to let you control your education now it's, um, it's really difficult to get excited about that you know, it's hard to sort of leave the legacy behind of mm-hmm. how education has been used as a weapon.
1: Yeah. A tool of indoctrination, and um, yeah, that's pretty much uh, the history of education, <laughs> Indian education Hi. in uh, Canada. Uh, used to assimilate and re essentially, like, you know, strip the Indian uh, from the child. Mhm. hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. At the same time, we know that post-residential school era, we had a devolution of administrative control for uh, First Nation schools. Uh, unfortunately, since the 1970s, 1980s, that administrative power hasn't really grown to taking over control of curriculum development or really indigenizing education systems in any way. Um, the federal government still... Uh, determines disciplinary parameters for students, for instance, and teacher certification. And, and uh, that, among mm-hmm. many other things, continues to lead to alienation from education systems. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And meanwhile... This system
1: sounds horrible. Why are you involved in it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'm not involved in in primary education. No, that's true. Um, but I do know, and I'm sure that you do as well, how... The, uh, you know, our, our friends, colleagues, uh, cousins work in in the education mm-hmm. system. They're okay. teachers in the schools mm-hmm. or principals, mm-hmm. and we yeah. know that in our communities we need these resources uh, mm-hmm. pretty desperately. So, um, moving away from the sort of proposal-based discretionary funding mm-hmm. model that currently exists is a good thing. It's mm-hmm. it's yeah. it's going to be helpful, I think. But mm-hmm.
1: I think this is really important because. Um, One of the things that I've long believed is for a long time, for communities to receive any kind of funding, it was uh, kind of imposed on them that there would have to be some kind of, um, you know, they would have to enter transfer payment agreements or what have you, and contingent upon those is incorporation. And a lot of communities didn't necessarily want to incorporate because of all the legal implications of that. And there were kind implications around control over land, use of land, using land as collateral, and all these kind of systemic barriers that kept communities from being able to access funding or receiving agreements that were tied up with jurisdiction. So one of the things that uh, you know Trudeau has done and is this legacy of ourRC was splitting of the departments that separated jurisdiction conversations from kind of service administration, which in theory I agree with I think I don't think it's necessarily a bad idea that you divorce kind of the the service delivery component over people's needs from conversations around jurisdiction and, like, the actual, you know, legal mechanics and on how reserves are established and and how they use their land through incorporation and all that kind of stuff. Like, that, to me, from, like, that kind of, like, backdoor or back-of-the-house kind of policy pieces is, you know, not necessarily a bad thing.
0: You know, people should be
1: able to receive funds to... Um, you know, establish clean drinking water and do all these things without having to have, you know, worry about the future jurisdiction or their control over their land.
0: Definitely. Mm-hmm. The devil is always in the details mm-hmm. with this government in particular. And and the split of the two ministries is really a good example because, I, I mean, this is something that RCAP, the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples in 1996, recommended. And mm-hmm. it does make sense on paper, but it gets muddy when, the Department mm-hmm. of Indigenous Services is responsible for education mm-hmm. uh, when education in, in some treaties is a, is a treaty right, mm-hmm. so therefore should it not be the responsibility of Crown Indigenous Relations who has responsibility for treaties, okay. you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I think that there's still a lot of confusion about what the rationale for this mm-hmm. splitting is and and how that's still the ongoing reluctance to recognize First Nation jurisdiction. If there was this if there was an honest uh, acknowledgement of indigenous sovereignty then we'd be dealing with Crown Indigenous Relations, but instead we're dealing with the Department of Indigenous Services and and uh, it's unclear whether or not the federal government's goal is to push all communities out of uh, indigenous services into crowd Indigenous relations, and where the constitutional obligations come in. So,
1: and that's kind of the whole reason for like the slow kind of processes that are attached to these, right? Is that you want to see these? Um, you do want to see, you know, uh, advancement and in, you know increase of services in communities. You want to see communities being able to have control over the money that has been made off of the use of their land and resources Um, you know you want to see them being able to build infrastructure and do all these things and people are really eager for that but as far as like actually executing it there, I think there's a lot of um, it doesn't happen as quickly as people wish and want it to and I think that's like where all the frustration and dissatisfaction is bred from right because it's like you don't want to move too too far ahead because um, there's a fear of how every policy to date has been racist and assimilatory (laughs) they have reason to be hesitant and concerned
0: um is there a worse track record
1: than colonialism (laughs) i don't think so i don't think so i think they've been uh you know oh for uh i don't know 500 years (laughs) oh for (laughs)
0: thirteen thousand. in Uh, the year of
1: our colony colonization 151 (laughs)
0: Yeah, uh. trust us, it'll be different this time though We promise, <laughs> yeah. based on our stellar record of trying to kill you Yeah <laughs> uh, Yeah, well, I think that, and again, talking about the details You know, the, the we got all the backgrounders and the talking points And all the information about this agreement, press release But it actually provided very little details about how this is going to be funded And what First Nations are going to have to do to receive these funds, you know, so there's this discussion of regional funding agreements, but uh, uh, conveniently, in all the information, the regional funding agreement details will be uh, discussed at a later date, and details will be released on them at a later date. So we don't actually know... Who's going to be eligible for this new education funding? We don't act. We don't know if First Nations are going to have to go through a certification process, if they're going to have to aggregate, uh, and uh, and 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 that's yet to be seen. So it's it's another uh, could potentially know. be another yeah. fast one pulled. But
1: we don't know how long this government is going to be in power. We don't know how long you know if the Liberals are not reelected in November. What is the likelihood that any of these agreements will be intact moving forward you know communities really need stability and stabilization and they're just continually at the whim of the government of the day
0: yeah now the afn is adamant that this is a co-developed policy and they want to take credit for it so um they must uh must see good things on the horizon but i think we'll reserve judgment Mm -hmm. um If it, if it, if it means more resources Mm -hmm. for First Nation children, though, Mm -hmm. it's uh, ultimately Mm -hmm. hopefully good. Yeah. But uh, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: not a lot of resources for post-secondary education right now. Nope.
1: And the province is drying up.
0: Yeah. So the different, the Mm -hmm. division of labor, which most of our listeners will Mm -hmm. know, is that Uh, The federal government has jurisdiction for primary education on reserve or education generally on reserve, but off reserve, you know, they wipe their hands of that and, uh, uh, except for some grants that they give, which are inadequate. Mm -hmm. Uh, and again,
1: give all those to Paul Martin, uh,
0: inadequate and, and, um, again, not not recognizing treaty Mm -hmm. obligations, but it's. Provincial jurisdiction. Post-secondary support uh, for Indigenous education and students often comes through the province, and we have a federal, gro- a provincial government right now that is withholding uh, those dollars. And uh, we have students, staff, uh, and, and uh, a variety of programs that are that are at risk of, mm-hmm. of of closing because we don't know what this province is doing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So, from your perspective. Who cares?
1: Um, well, I care a bit. I care about, you know, we're in capitalism. None of us are consuming ethically. And I care about, you know, my friends' ability to uh, unethically consume things and have all the things they want out of life, you know, that kind of thing. I have a lot of friends, begrudgingly, that are in academia. And uh, I recognize it as, a, you know, part a fundamental part of people's... Um, Career paths and that that kind of stuff. My particular experience with um, post secondary education uh, has been terrible. Um, And I also respect, you know, people like me (laughs) who have not been able to navigate that system, right? The whole separate colonial system that is, you know, the ivory tower and uh, been unable to tolerate or thrive in that kind of colonial environment.
0: And what have uh, what have your challenges been?
1: Um, well, we talked about in an early episode my kind of training when it comes to emergency services. So I went to college because, like many um, uh, status Indian, eligible for education funding from my community. Uh, federally, I you have to kind of do it in sequence, right? If you're going to take college courses, you have to go to college first and then university. You can't go to university and then to college. So, I went to college and I did um, did courses there and thought I was going to be a cop and didn't. And then, um, by the time I was done going to school in Sudbury, I had been in Sudbury for three years, um, I went to university at Laurier in Brantford and... Um, was basically just like, you know, I was too young to become a police officer. So I went to school and just had a really terrible time. There were faculty that were not of the indigenous ancestry that they claimed, taking up space. Um, There were, uh, you know, non-indigenous faculty teaching indigenous courses. The school had advertised a lot more Indigenous content in their courses, they never actually taught those courses. Um, So they advertised like a minor in Indigenous Studies, but you could never actually take enough of the variety of courses to obtain a minor in Indigenous Studies. Um, Our Indigenous advisor and the lead of the program left when I was in university. They didn't bother to rehire them. Um, I was in a program that was incredibly westernized. And so I took organizational leadership, which is, is basically like how to establish, run businesses and how policy and organizational structure yield results from people. And there was absolutely no kind of indigenized content within that specialization. So when I went to my program instructor and was like, listen, this, I don't think this will, these strategies you're teaching me are relevant or useful within an indigenous community... They basically told me to go see the faculty, people that had left the university. And so I was like, I can't really go to them because they teach at another school. Are you suggesting I go to another school to get the education I'm looking for? That kind Mm -hmm, of thing. mm -hmm. Um, I went to a university that didn't have um, specialized services. So um, at the time, I had gone from a college that had really good student services. And I had volunteered at the Women's Center. When I got to Laurier, it was a campus that was 60 to 70% female in Brantford, which has the highest per capita reported rates of sexual violence in a community. So there's an incredibly high risk of sexual violence. Uh, A large female population at the school, and they offered no services for women um, when it comes to anti-violence, protection from violence, or any of that kind of stuff. So instrumental at the university in advocating and creating that space You know, part of the Aboriginal Education Council, very keen, you know, vice president of the Aboriginal Students Association, very keen and engaged student, and going to Laurier just beat that out of me. It was incredibly grueling. It was incredibly taxing. I took on so much work outside of my academic classroom to better the university environment and was not supported at all through it.
0: Don't go to Laurier. (laughs)
1: Don't go to Laurier, except for me, who is going through the process right now to to (laughs) re-enroll at Laurier
0: (laughs) to begrudgingly finish
1: my degree. You
0: just cannot escape. No. So you have provided a very long list Mm -hmm. of uh, Mm -hmm. concise challenges in the University or in post secondary, common I mean,
1: experiences I think that a common lot of experiences have,
0: I right? think I faced the same experience, mm-hmm. I had the same issues. I mean, I I, I did an undergraduate mm-hmm. degree, I did a master's degree, I just completed a PhD in the spring. Um, and yeah, a lot of what you say resonates with my experience as a student, whether it's the racist professors, mm-hmm. the ethnic frauds, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, racist curriculum that infused, that was infused with and perpetuated uh, just sort of violent uh, ways of thinking and, and researching and even teaching. I mean, that's all saturating the university. Uh, the disorganization and lack of support for any student services, uh, The the Weak, weak, indigenous, faux-reconciliatory curriculum that we see emerging now. Uh, the unaddressed issues of sexual violence. Um, yeah, that's... Uh, that all... all, all.
1: Yeah, that's the, yeah. yeah it, that's it's there, what happens. it's there, it's there. So, I think that's a difference too. So when I was, I guess, reaching my kind of like wit's end with the school, um, I also because I was so keen and applied to everything and did all this extra work and was like essentially uh, doing everything I could uh, volunteer wise I um, applied to be on a thing called the Youth Development Committee with the Ministry of Children and Youth Services and I was on a youth advisory panel to the Youth Policy Framework which was responding to the Roots of Youth Violence Report for the Ministry of Children and Youth Services and went and worked, uh, in like a co-development youth policy space with the ministry and just dragged them, <laughs> like, uh, really was disruptive to their process and very challenging. And, um, I think I ruined probably every meeting agenda that they planned for that committee, um, called them all their bullshit and, um, made one of the manager's lives there, intolerable I think and then he offered me a job at the ministry (laughs) (laughs)
0: that's (laughs) (laughs) that's what happens you agitate (laughs) and then you get co-opted
1: yeah exactly so I have been co-opted and left I essentially left academia right I had that I had this volunteer experience and then um in having that experience gained um the opportunity to fill in on a sick leave contract doing as a junior policy analyst was a junior policy analyst for you know a few months became a full kind of like social policy analyst um, for my community eventually was seconded by the ministry to work on another policy initiative and have just like stayed in policy since then and had the opportunity to work for some wonderful managers who took the time to work with me and teach me about po- teach me how to do policy in a very kind and compassionate way who created space for me and safety in a way that I never experienced in academia before like I would rather I would much rather work for a good manager in government than have a good faculty person at a university it just feels much more relevant right. it feels like you're able to affect more change and make a difference and so mm-hmm. I've I've just, I've, and I've kind of reached a plateau in my career, right? I have now six years policy experience. I need to do something else, I guess. Right, right, right. But like,
0: no, so yeah. while you've done all of this work and mm-hmm. this learning mm-hmm. uh, in this uh, very community-engaged sort of policy development, mm-hmm. none of that was taught to you in any post-secondary setting and you've no. done it without the accreditation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and now unfortunately and this is common also Mm -hmm. you're faced with this circumstance Mm -hmm. where your your expertise is in value because you don't have that piece of paper
1: yeah so you need to get a piece of paper
0: gotta get a piece of paper
1: as my auntie said (laughs) it's not the ivory tower and it's not academia it is a paper farm just (laughs) go and sit in the class and get the paper farm so i'm taking online courses (laughs) yeah okay and so I'm doing uh, that kind of thing I'm you know writing short stories taking an indigenous history class
0: well maybe Mm -hmm. uh, maybe everything will turn around for you and Mm -hmm. uh, you know I I, I guess I've been in education Mm -hmm. for 10 years not only as a student but I I started teaching at McMaster University Mm -hmm. from a pretty young age I mean Mm -hmm. I started my teaching career when I was 26 27 Um, Mm -hmm teaching university classes and i didn't know what i was doing and uh luckily i had really supportive colleagues indigenous colleagues and mentors that really trained me and again i didn't learn how to be a teacher by the time when i started teaching i only had a master's degree from a conservative university that uh hated me i think ultimately in my work but i didn't know how to be a teacher and they taught me in in very careful and thoughtful ways and uh planted and watered me and, and helped me grow into I think a, a, a good teacher
1: Into um, Hayden
0: <laughs> I was adopted against my will by by Mohawks when I was at McMaster yeah um, so anyway I guess I'm saying that there's that contrasting experience right I think that and I see it among students too uh, I I've, for in 10 years it's taken me 10 years to get to a place where I can work exclusively with first nation students but Throughout those years, in the courses that I have worked with Native students in largely non-Native classes, it is remarkable to see the transformation, you know, because I think that post-secondary education is, for many people who are less community and culturally grounded, it is the first exposure they have um, to their background and and their... their actual history and the history of settler colonialism and you see an awakening and a a consciousness raising and it's really Mm -hmm. just a privilege to be able to support that and 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 cultivate Mm -hmm. that and and my experiences working Mm -hmm. with indigenous students through the past decade has really demonstrated Mm -hmm. to me for all of the very Mm -hmm. gross offenses and challenges Mm -hmm. of of the academy Mm um that 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 that, that those small miracles can happen is astonishing and, mm-hmm. and, and gives me the sort of uh, encouragement to keep going and keep making changes and mm-hmm. and, uh, and now we find ourselves in the era of reconciliation yeah. where uh, we're grappling with this
1: mm-hmm. we've never had more twitter followers than <laughs> we do now mm-hmm. uh,
0: grappling with this this question of well the university says that it wants to change but is it is it genuinely changing it is, is it actually changing and is it, is it all superficial mm-hmm. um and while you're in the midst of it it's it's tough to answer that question some mm-hmm. days it's like this is mm-hmm. utter bullshit and other days it's like wow i have really amazing colleagues and really amazing students and tremendous support from a senior administration. Mm-hmm. Um, now how to translate that into change that isn't glacial is <laughs> uh is 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 mm-hmm. is the, the question for me
1: <laughs> yeah good luck with that i'm going to be up to my <laughs> eyeballs in reconciliation and child welfare over here trying to
0: yeah policy changes similar policy. similar challenges
1: yeah uh, um i think that's the thing too and i think maybe like the kind of common experiences one of the things that i was fortunate to you know i have reached a point in my career where I have, uh, you know, been in a role as a director, as a policy director. That's ultimately, like, my dream job is to be a director of strategic policy and doing that kind of work and having the opportunity to work with young um, policy analysts and work with young people that are starting out their careers. I really, really enjoyed that part of the work of being able to, To do that and offer that kind of support because I don't think especially young women don't get that I really struggle to find that for myself and I see that you see like the ideas of like mentorship and people cultivating people's skills is is not really common in the workplace anymore so being able to do that and sit with like you know people that were my staff and say like listen you're a junior policy analyst now you're obviously not going to do that work for the rest of your life where do you see yourself, and how do you see yourself growing and transitioning, and what skills do you need to build to become a more effective advocate in a pol- uh, policy sphere, but um, how do you build a career, right, that's going to be sustaining, and, and how are you, through work, able to get the things you want out of life, right, stability and, you know, get what you can before global warming kills us all? <laughs> well,
0: you're not going to find that answer in the academy. but there's an interesting contrast there because I think what policy does or tries to do and I don't know how effective it is but it tries to take these complex ideas and, and, and theories and frameworks and translate them into accessible ways that can be deployed and interpreted uh, by anybody um, like I said I'm not sure how effective it is in every case but that's different from the academy often and indigenous academics really fail at this I think uh, a lot of the time as well in being accessible in in translating complex ideas and and translating the the languages that we're required to to learn in the academy that are so opaque and and uh and inaccessible we get wrapped up and there's nothing wrong with being a philosopher there's nothing wrong with you know thinking in very complex ideas and Uh, wading into ontological and Mm -hmm. epistemological debates and going toe-to-toe with the Western philosophers Mm -hmm. or theorists or whatever. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, I think that there is an important question there about how relevant that is for communities Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, and, and how much work Indigenous academics are, are doing to actually translate these issues and, and support communities i think that i think that's one of the challenges that i continue to to confront in the academy how how overwhelmingly inaccessible it can be
1: Mm-hmm. yeah it really um and that's the thing that frustrates me too about some of the work that you see coming out of uh different you know from different academics It's saying like you know people i really believe that people that occupy these positions of authority or positions of power or you know our policy analysts our lawyers are making their careers off of creating change for indigenous communities or marketing themselves as being Mm. change makers right you are occupy a position of power and authority you're making your living off of the hardships that people in our community face
0: right
1: your economic stability comes from that and you see a lot of people that are just very superficially trying to make change in that area without kind of an authentic or transparent or accountable way of conducting themselves and their business in a way that's actually true to the experience of communities, right? And Uh I think that any of the work that you do especially for me as a policy analyst because it's so entrenched in colonialism and colonial structures that I feel like I should always be able to go to communities and say here's what I'm working on here's what I'm doing here's how I've worked to amplify your perspectives and I put myself and my views secondary to what people in communities have said in service of children especially has been a, a big part of my career because if there's nothing to be gained and no community is going to be liberated by me imposing my ideas onto them Right. and there are so many people that are doing that and academia I feel like really incentivizes people to do that, right? That it's your name, it's your book, it's your publishing, it's your paper, it's your name on this and in policy a lot of the times you don't put your name on your work, it belongs to an organization or it belongs to a community and that to me always just felt more authentic and more real.
0: Yeah. I. You know, I think that along with the inaccessibility is a further distancing from communities uh you're right you're absolutely right that academia creates a space where you can you know talk at length about how community engaged you are but the fact is that academia cultivates individuality and and um and I, i see in many cases not all cases there are really good academics with really rigorous methodologies mm-hmm. that are accountable to, com- to communities. But uh, often you, you do really see a lack of, of community connection. And what happens is academics start referring to themselves as a community. So, you know, I become accountable to my community of like-minded, inaccessible, mm-hmm. d- estranged from community academics. You mm-hmm. know, there's a completely fabricated uh, community there, mm-hmm. but because we're indigenous, we, we give ourselves the license mm-hmm. to um, create mm-hmm. that accountability structure yeah. which is basically a, a, mm-hmm. a backdoor out of obligations that I think indigenous academics should have.
1: Yeah. And it's I think it's kind of the tension too that exists between like policymakers and academics, right? Because academics will say that policymakers are so disjointed or disconnected from communities. But I know academics that would levy those critiques against me and my work that are not yes. comfortable walking yes. into the same spaces that I've walked into and not comfortable having the same difficult conversations that I've had with communities, right? Like you actually have to go into those spaces. I know so many academics who would never go and go to, um, you know, homeless shelters or go and talk with kids in care or talk with communities and talk about having really tangibly changing how you deliver services, like especially my work with the youth, right, talking with young people, youth in secure custody, around how the system that you work with is unaccountable to them and then having to carry that back and do something with it that's actually going to make a difference right. so that it's not just you know strategic policy lens it's changing philosophically things you know 10 15 years out that you actually do the work that alleviates the hardships on people that are around today and that mm-hmm. they see a difference mm-hmm. in what they're receiving
0: yeah and and um you know a lot of the work mm-hmm. that we're trying to do at yellowhead anyway The a shameless plug here is 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 toppling that structure, and you know we're working on programming for mm-hmm. inca- incarcerated mm-hmm. Indigenous folks, and most mm-hmm. of the presentations that we do is going into mm-hmm. communities, First Nations, mm-hmm. uh, and, and doing presentations, and a- everything that we do, really, uh, um, from the start of conceptualizing mm-hmm. the research to uh, sharing um, the results of that mm-hmm. research, starts and ends with with uh, with mm-hmm. the community, and. And uh like I said, some do it well, some do it very poorly, but I think it's a it's a debate mm-hmm. that we need to continue to have in, in the Academy and and you know, I think it has to be you you said lots of positive mm-hmm. things about about policy development and policy analysts, indigenous policy mm-hmm. analysts, but of course, um mm-hmm. we know we started we started this conversation talking mm-hmm. about how the, the track mm-hmm. record of colonial administrators is is it zero point sh- zero zero well, percent I mean. and, like, and so we're both you yeah. know you know trying to mm-hmm. untangle these these mm-hmm. messes and I've learned a little bit about your work and you've little learned a little bit about mm-hmm. my work and maybe um mm-hmm. I, I don't know what the, what the other side of maybe is <laughs> in this particular case, but well,
1: and I think that's the thing with like how poorly and how easy easy it is to become co opted, right? It happens to academics, it happens to policy analysts, it happens to lawyers, it happens to all these people that think they're trying to make change and they actually aren't. And you have to actually question yourself, your motivations, why you're saying it and why you're doing that thing, because I see it all the time with you know every freaking. I get so frustrated and anyone who follows me on Twitter knows anytime AFN sends out a statement, I'm the first one to yell at them and say like their language, the way that they talk about issues, it's, it's so fluffy policy BS that it's not actually saying anything substantive, right? Mm -hmm. It's so easy to do that, to use like weasel words to make it seem like you're doing something when you're not and people that become attuned to, you know, what those, how that talk is and what the speak is and how that happens, it's just so frustrating to see it because there's been kind of like an unprecedented opportunity for the advancement of rights and I feel like sometimes there's organizations that co opt and squander it, take up space, take TPAs or take funding agreements and don't actually do the work they need to connect to communities to figure out how do you, how are you led by people in communities to do to create change.
0: Like child welfare agencies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, listen. listen, we're at at the end of the red road here today but
1: we've been sitting outside of your house (laughs) for a minute
0: (laughs) so the you know people might be listening to this podcast and thinking to themselves Mm -hmm. like this is just critical it's just critique 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 but i think for people in positions of privilege Mm -hmm. like you and i it's important to keep the focus on on those obligations Mm -hmm. and the and the and the Mm -hmm. and uh uh failures Mm of of the systems in which we we find ourselves and um Mm -hmm. so i'm i'm quite happy to to Mm -hmm. to shine a light on these in my own Mm -hmm. behavior and practices as well so maybe we'll continue this conversation um
1: when i get back from vacation when
0: you get back from vacation so
1: have fun taking the bus (laughs)
0: Uh, it's so cold I out. I will. It's such a far I will walk enjoy, I, I will enjoy taking the bus. You I'll should. Lounge. And Maybe you'll nice, appreciate this
1: comfy podcast car
0: uh, a little bit
1: more when uh, I'm back in a month. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right. Well, I guess that means there's another little hiatus for mm-hmm. our listeners. Um, but stay tuned. We'll be back. We'll always be back. The Red Road never ends.
1: You've been listening to the Red Road podcast created by Courtney Skye and Damon King, sounding audio editing by Humble Man Recording. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, Google Play, SoundCloud, and iTunes. I've
0: been driving in my Indian car to the
1: of